You are listening to Reach MD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. We cage animals to keep them safe from us and us from them. What if we caged transplanted cells to keep them safe from our immune system and vice versa? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is Dr. Barjor Gimme, Assistant Professor, Department of Radiology, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, and the Department of Radiology and Radiological Science, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Gimme is a Partnership for Cures pilot grant recipient. Dr. Gimme and I are discussing his research focused on encapsulated cell-based therapies. Dr. Gimme, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Bloom. So why are researchers interested in cell-based therapy as opposed to drug delivery using injections, nasal, transdermal, or oral delivery? Essentially, with nasal or transdermal delivery, you have to deliver a drug at very specific time intervals and very specific doses. Whereas with cell therapy, the cells secrete therapeutic molecules in response to the host's system. So, for instance, if you have high glucose levels, your cells will secrete more insulin. And so this is a more physiological alternative to taking drugs through exogenous sources. Additionally, taking drugs through exogenous sources run the danger of not having access to a critical drug at a critical point in time. And you don't run that danger when you have transplanted cells. So let's talk a little bit about what cell-based therapy really is. You mentioned the word transplanted cells. Is that what cell-based therapy is all about? Yes. So essentially refers to transplanting cells to replace or restore the host's function. And in a case of, say, hormone deficiency, the transplanted cells would then secrete therapeutic molecules, or hormones in this case, that would replace endogenous hormones. They can also do it through indirect sources, such as elicit a response from the host. So it doesn't have to be that they directly secrete the therapeutic molecules, but they just get a desired response from the host. So under what circumstances do we just transplant these cells versus encapsulating them in something else? Well, there are several reasons to encapsulate cells, and a principal reason is to protect them from the host's immune system. So if you transplant animal or human cells into a patient, the patient's immune system will attack and destroy the cells. And so when you encapsulate them, you're essentially protecting them from the host's immune system. So long as your encapsulation technique doesn't allow large immune proteins or macrophages to enter into the encapsulated volume. And what are the current impediments to encapsulated cell therapy? The two most commonly used methods for encapsulation are to use polymer encapsulation with loosely organized polymers such as alginate or to use encapsulation in large biocapsules that then have silicon membranes that are nanoporous. And with the polymer encapsulation, the primary problem there is these polymers being loosely organized cannot exclude all of the immune proteins of the host system. And so as a result of that, if even if 5% of those immune proteins get in, the immune complement compounds actually enter the capsule, they will attack and destroy the encapsulated cells. So that those cells won't be viable for therapy anymore. And in the case of large biocapsules, the problem is that the cells starve, essentially, of oxygen and nutrients. And so they don't survive very long. They don't remain viable very long. And the reason that they don't survive very long is you're saying there's too big an amount of cells to start with? Well, there's too big, so the volume is very large. So there are too many cells, and so cells on the periphery 
of this device will use up, will utilize all the nutrients and the oxygen. And so the cells in the center will start to get necrotic and the region starts becoming hypoxic and the cells don't remain viable very long. And also with large biocapsules, uh, another problem is that you can't really put them into desired transplant locations. So you can suture them into the peritoneal cavity, for instance, but you can't put them in portal infusion into the blood. And so they're very starved of vasculature and of oxygen in the peritoneal cavity. So that is a big impediment to... So when we talk about these large biocapsules, how big are they for you know, the average physician to think, is it as big as a thumbnail, is it as big as a quarter? How big are we talking about? Typically, the ones that are developed are on the order of, uh, I would say, as big as a thumbnail, about a centimeter scale. The slightly smaller ones are just under a centimeter, but they're certainly not on the order of hundreds of microns. And so even that small, what seems to us to be a small transplanted device is so big that the cells at the center of that are starved for nutrients and become necrotic. Absolutely. So any cell that is more than 150 microns away from the vascular source starts suffering from oxygen deprivation. So this has been known since 1955, actually. There was a seminal paper by Tomlinson and Gray in the Journal of British Cancer, and that, that has set the ground rules for how much oxygen gets consumed before they reach the cells. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. Barjor Gimme, Assistant Professor, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, about his cell-based therapy research. Doesn't the body vascularize these transplants or implants? Yes, indeed, if you allow it to. And our entire purpose is to create a protective device that has such small pores that large proteins cannot get in. And so if large proteins cannot get in, it cannot recruit vasculature either because blood vessels are fairly large. So we do have some devices that have large pores where the body does indeed vascularize the graft. But for our xenograft devices, we have very tiny pores on the order of 20 to 40 nanometers, and that is to exclude any kind of interaction between the host and any direct interaction between the host and the transplanted cells. So if I'm hearing you, if it's big enough to be vascularized, then it's big enough to let the immune system in. And if we protect it from the immune system then it's too small for even the smallest capillaries to be growing inside. That is exactly right. So what's the difference with the encapsulation that you're working on versus what you describe with the polymers or the large biocontainers? The polymers that have been used to date have been loosely organized polymers. And so they're very tortuous, and they don't have very precise control over pore size. And as a result of that, proteins can wiggle their way in, so to speak, Whereas the polymers we're using now for our microcapsules are highly cross-linked structural polymers, and they do not allow any proteins to get in, uh, any of the immune complement compounds, I should say. Also, we used to make them out of metal, but now we make them out of this polymer. And also, out of, with regard to the large biocapsules, the technology used to fabricate these devices is wafer-scale silicon technology, which is essentially computer chip technology. And this is a two-dimensional process. And so we've had to find creative ways of making three-dimensional devices so that we can leverage the micro and nanofabrication techniques that have been developed in the computer industry, but we can leverage it for these cell encapsulation applications. 
What shape are these three-dimensional capsules that you're making? They're cubic in nature for now. We've, we've tried other shapes. We've tried other polyhedral shapes, but essentially the cubic in nature and they're about 300 microns in dimension. And do they look like little cages like I described? Yes, exactly. They, they look like little porous cages that have cells inside and, and won't allow macrophages or large proteins to get in. And they're so small, so how do you get them together? Do you have little uh, machinists there that are also little <laughs> micro guys that put them together? Originally, when I was at Johns Hopkins, we actually tried the process of self-assembly, where we put hinges on a planar precursor, on a planar structure. And then when we dissolve these hinges in an appropriate solvent, the hinges melt, creating surface tension, and the device goes from a 2D structure and it just folds up automatically into a 3D structure. However, now at UT Southwestern, we're pursuing a new approach with highly crosslinked polymers, and we're still evaluating the biocompatibility and so on. So it's still very much an ongoing process. But we've moved away from the self-assembly process because we believe that we have a better handle on how to do these now. So. And these are so small, how do you keep track of them in the body when you put them in there? We used to make them out of metal, so it was quite easy to track them. The way we devised them was to make them out of a conductor, and as a result of that, it acts as an RF cage, which excludes all the signal you would see in MRI. And so we would track them with MRI. But now we're making them out of a polymer, and so we cannot directly track them with MRI, which is the purpose of it. We would like them to be MR transparent. They're also optically transparent. So the way we're going to track these is we're going to have, uh, well, we already visualize them right now with fluorescence, so with optical techniques, but we're also going to encapsulate them with cells that are fluorescent. And so we will know exactly where these devices reside. So inside these little nano cages will be enough fluorescent cells for you to pick them out when you're imaging them. Exactly right. In fact, we've already done the imaging. So we've, we have proof of principle of this. And are these fluorescent cells also active cell therapy cells? Or are there two separate kinds of cells inside each one of the devices? Well, we can add fluorescent dyes to active cell therapy cells, but we may also just engineer them to be fluorescent. So your research model uses islet transplantation therapy for diabetics. Uh, why do you need to use intact islets as opposed to using insulin-secreting cells? Well, the main component of intact islets are beta cells, which are insulin-secreting cells. But, however, there are also alpha and delta cells in the islet. And the crosstalk between these cell types actually very tightly regulate the hormone levels and, therefore, in turn, the blood glucose levels. And so the intact islet essentially acts as a syncytium, which is why we lean towards using intact islets as opposed to just using insulin-secreting cells. What do you think the impact of this research is going to be on diabetes? When do we think we'll see potentially a breakthrough for patients who are diabetic with this? Uh, I should emphasize that we're certainly very much in the early phases of this, but we're testing biocompatibility at the moment, and we have positive results on short-term biocompatibility. So the next step would be to test long-term biocompatibility. If that works out, then essentially we need to see if our devices support grafting for long-term tra transplant therapy, which is to say that we would like to see not just a short-term curative effect, but a long-term restorative effect. If we are able to do those studies, then I think we'll be ready to transition from animal models into humans. And when you say a long-term success, you're talking about that these devices would become a part of the 
person or the mouse that they were transplanted into and remain viable for a long time and you would need to have this therapy over and over? Exactly. We would like not to be able to replenish these, say, every two years, but to have them in essentially as a permanent source. And right now we have some issues with not having enough donor source of islets to transplant. Is that going to be a, an issue with these devices as well, or do we have other cells that we might be able to put in here or other ways to get them? No, I think that is exactly what these devices are intended to circumvent. So there is a shortage of human donors for transplantation, including cadaveric islets. And so having devices that support xenografts will allow us to use mouse islets or other islets that we can implant into humans and have them insulin independent. I want to thank Dr. Barjor Gimme of UT Southwestern Medical Center for sharing his encapsulated cell therapy research with us. I am attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.